This program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the Faculty Innovation Center of the University of Texas at Austin. Who we are as people shapes who we are as teachers. About how our lived experience informs our teaching. Uh, we can be flexible and adapt and change this. You're, you're free to do that. We don't have to have it perfect. We are about getting folks together from all walks of teaching life. The key phrase you, you suggest there is it, it has to be done collectively. We have so much to learn from the other side of campus. <laughs> from the University of Texas at Austin, this is The Other Side of Campus. Hi, I'm Jen, and I'm from the College of Natural Sciences. Hi, I'm Stephanie Seidel-Holmston in the College of Liberal Arts. Today, we are talking to Dr. Diane Rhodes. Welcome, Diane, to the conversation today. Thank you. Dr. Rhodes received her PhD in social work from the University of Texas at Austin, where her areas of research include partner violence, family violence, and the social constructions of intimate violence with a focus on the presentation of partner violence in young adult fiction. So she brings 28 years of social work professional experience to her scholarship, and we're excited to talk with you today. Thanks. So Diane, these are really complicated and tricky personal topics. What drew you to studying domestic violence and sexual assault? Oh boy. Um, (laughs) Right off the bat. Right off the bat, okay. What drew me to studying it was my work history. So as a very young parent, I was still a student at UT and had my children in a co-op daycare that was co-housed with the Austin Rape Crisis Center. And someone from that agency asked me if I was looking for a job. Would I be interested in coming and doing a theater-based safety intervention for school kids? Where we would go into classrooms and act out various situations and help kids practice different safety behaviors. And we would start with bullies and we would go all the way up to if you had been sexually assaulted. And I said, sure, that sounds awesome. It'll make the world safer for my little kids. And I like acting, so why not? (laughs) Beautiful. So that's kind of how my career got started. And it, it was in parallel with me getting an undergraduate degree in English at UT also. And so that job morphed into continued work with rape survivors and working with kids and advocating for them in the in the child protective services world. And it was hard to work with kids when their grown-ups weren't there. You just felt like you were giving them all these skills and assistance that was just going nowhere because they had to go home to really awful situations. And so I really wanted to be in a situation, in a job where I could work with whole families, where I would see some actual change, and started working at the Center for Battered Women because that was an arena where at least I had mom in play. (laughs) If I want to make the world better for kid, I need to have mom in the story. (laughs) But throughout that, as I was growing up, also just became very knowledgeable and, and cared a lot about the violence that happens within a family, whether it's elder abuse or child abuse or partner violence. We separate those things as a society, but the fact of violence within the intimacy of a family is a very interesting topic to me. So that's how that became part of my scholarships. I thought, how can I put writing and 
domestic violence and all of those things together in a, in a degree to start bringing together all of my skills and expertise. I also write fiction and do other crazy stuff. And I wanted to make all of that come together. And then Twilight happened. So maybe this is the young adult fiction part, right? Exactly. Yeah, I, there, I had been doing domestic violence work and prevention work for 20 some odd years. And I'm walking around at SAFE is the agency that I worked for, domestic violence. We did both prevention work and treatment stuff, right? I'm walking through the campus and I had been hearing about this book, Twilight. Everybody was all excited about it. And I saw a copy of the book on a shelf and I said, would you mind, can I borrow this book? So I borrowed the book, I'm walking, it's a 12 acre campus. So I'm walking all the way back to my office and like three or four different people are like, you're gonna love that book. It's fabulous. I've read all of them. You're gonna, I was like, okay, great. I'm ready. Vampires, let's do this. And I read it and it was domestic violence. Vampire, we take your candy. And I was like, oh, oh, yeah, it was just bad. So I had started asking myself this question, where, where did we get it wrong in terms of what we thought needed to happen around prevention, particularly with teenagers, that this book could become such a juggernaut and be movies and there were these mother-daughter conferences where they were going to. Yeah, it was a little crazy. So where did we get it wrong? Young adult fiction has this very pivotal part in terms of how we learn values and how we act out our adult relationships. And I had already been a little concerned about Harry Potter. One of my all-time favorite things, I love Harry Potter, but Harry Potter and the myth of the orphan hero is really problematic in terms of culture and safety and society. And so I had already had that question in my mind and had heard a lot of kids who were in a lot of trouble, like a lot of trouble. Like I was talking to a kid who had murdered somebody and was in jail and he wanted to get out of jail and he was using Harry Potter as his template for how to be in the world. And I was like, I. You are a little brown boy in jail in the United States. That's not going to work. This woman was not writing about you. There's no Hogwarts. There's no magic. Please stop. So I already had that question in my mind, right? What's happening at that intersection where kids have stopped just looking at us as their family and started looking out at popular culture and their friends for their models and for the experiences that they aspire towards. Yeah. So that's in a very large nutshell. That's how I got to taking a really hard, critical look at what happens in young adult fiction and how does it reinforce some of the negative values that we have around family. Wow, that is really interesting. You know, Diane, as a parent, as I mentioned, of 15-year-olds, this literature is seeped into the conversations that we have. It's Harry Potter, The Hunger Games, The Maze Runner. And you do, right? I tend to think, well, maybe they're picking up the things I hope that they're picking up. But you are right that there are other things they could be grabbing from those stories as well. So what you're telling me is a story about young people's perception of themselves and the world around them. How do you engage with young people in your classroom as they do that work? That's such a good question. I try to be really upfront and challenging with them around some of those things. 
And I try to share with them that although I love those stories too, and I understand how they have become so iconic, I push them, I try to push them a little bit around, is it actually that cool to be abused as a kid and kept in a closet that you then end up saving the world? Is that a real construct? And in what universe is that actually okay? And do we really want to think that that's how character needs to be built? Wow. The reason that this person was so persevering and so honest and all these things was because his aunt and uncle had locked him in a closet for 12 years. I'm not comfortable with that. (laughs) In fact, I'm uncomfortable with that. And I'm really uncomfortable with the idea that if nobody locked you in a closet, that you might not be able to be that magical leader. Yeah. And that's very upsetting. And so, you know, I, I, I push them on those things and they are very surprised. I mean, I had kids are just like, oh, well now I have to look at all this other stuff. And I'm like, I wish that you their world. I hope that you will. It makes me think also about trying to have empathy for people that have challenging backgrounds and experiences. You know, I was thinking about conversations with my own kids where if there's some kid at school that's whatever, acting out, and I don't mean in a really like dangerous way, but just like whatever. And you know, so I always have this conversation as probably you guys do with like, okay, but you don't know about what his home life might be like. You know, he might be in a situation where he never feels safe or this is how he's being treated. So like, you know, this is something you gotta think about. Before you just said that, I never thought about like, then we read Harry Potter and go, wow, what an incredible upstanding young human this produced. And then that goes out the window, right? Cause it, it, obviously if you're being abused your entire life, you turn into a very upstanding person that has empathy for everyone and just wants to save the world. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah, it's really interesting. Have either of you read Twilight? Oh, yeah, I've read all of them. Okay, so if you're a young man and you would like to date someone, Mm -hmm. you actually have to be a monster in order to be attractive to women your own age because this is what they're reading and this is what they like. Yeah, it's also, I've always had a little struggle too with that concept of like, the male character's like, what, 300 years old? Yes. And she's like 17 and somehow that's his soulmate. I'm sitting here like as a 47 year old going, Really? Because there's we a lot of growing that. that happens after that. That's actually pretty beneficial to a, a mutual relationship. <laughs> you know? No, no, Twilight is really very problematic. On many, many, I'm many levels. that now. Yeah, right. Many, many levels. <laughs> but, you know, just to name a few. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, you know, you have Star Wars. And you have... Moses in the basket. I mean, it's not, these stories are not alone. The Western European tradition of thinking about children and childhood is complex. And we have not always corrected for things that we think we have. What do you think the attraction is to that? Because I mean, it is a theme, right? In a lot of children's literature and as well as young adult fiction. What is it that makes those stories compelling? Like, why, why do you think that they're so prevalent, even though they seem really obviously problematic when you think about it? Some of those skills were probably pretty decent survival skills for people to have at certain times in humanity, human history. So I'm not surprised that hero stories continue to have the kind of staying power that they have. The competitive nature of Western European cultures 
really valorizes I killed all the nine million monsters, people, pods, whatever, in order to save my people. I, if you were a Viking, that was probably a pretty reasonable thing to think. You know, it was cold and you had to kill people and eat them and... This is developing into a very bad habit. Procreate. We just got really dark. Like, I didn't know if it was possible to get darker. I think we might have. Like, super dark on you and I'm trying not to, but I think that our current culture in the United States is built on cultures that were centered around conquest. You know, there's that whole, we were created in the image of, and so that means we're better than everybody and everything that was not created in that image. And when you kind of combine those two things, you get a pretty interesting set of stories. I'm thinking of Brother Grimm stories as well, or I'm thinking of Rapunzel, right? Isn't she sort of trapped by a, a, a caretaker and, you know, Hansel and Gretel? We have a lot of stories. It seems like sometimes... Beauty and the Beast. Beauty yeah. and the Beast, this sort of coming-of-age story where the young character is a bit untethered and then finds out that they are, in fact, being protected by some other force. So for Harry Potter, it's magic. He thinks he doesn't belong, but then, in fact, he does belong. I think you're right, Diane, these themes of sort of conquest. And fear, right? A lot of this is driven by fear. A lot of it is driven by fear. And a lot of it is driven by notions of individualism. You have to somehow overcome these things by yourself. At the end of Harry Potter, he's very clear, no one help me, I have to do this myself. Even though he's completely surrounded by his community, right? He refutes their assistance and says, it has to be me. I think that's the direct quote. And if what you want is a very kind of competitive, conquer-based, individualist culture, that's pretty good fuel for your fire and is gonna be pretty compelling. So I'm thinking a little bit, Diane, also about your classroom. So you're teaching. How do you create a space in your class where students can actually change their perception of something in front of their colleagues? It's it's embarrassing sometimes to say, I love Harry Potter, and now you've opened my eyes, and I think, oops, I'm embarrassed that I liked Harry, right? How do you create that safe space? Partly by telling them I love Harry Potter too. I, I have the audio book from, I bootlegged it from England because I wanted Stephen Fry as the author who read it to me. I can quote for you sections from the Deathly Hallows. People tell me, oh, so-and-so happened in Harry Potter. And I'm like, oh yeah, book five. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I love those stories. I'm part of this culture too. We're all steeped in the same tea. So I try to start from saying, we're all in this together. And so let's learn how to ask it some questions. Let's learn how to not just blindly embrace this and figure out what do we love? What are the questions that we have about it? What are the things that are problematic? And how do we have all of those things at the same time? There doesn't have to be a dichotomy between Harry Potter's good and Harry Potter's bad. That's crazy. There's some wonderful elements to that story and there are some problematic elements to that story. And there's some stuff that I'm like, you know, those Gringotts guys, uh, there's something anti-Semitic in there somewhere with the whole troll thing. I'm not happy. (laughs) 
let's not do that. With the, and I think it even with the, the long fingered, the long fingered gnome who's gathering all that. And I was like, okay, look. Wow. <laughs> right? Because you can go back in both American and European history and see those exact phrases being used about the Jewish community as we ramped up towards World War II. To re-enliven all of that through fiction without even knowing it, mm-hmm. right? I, do I think that J.K. Rowling was like, let me make these into little Jewish, you know, know me? No, she was not. She was raised in all the same stuff that we were. So yeah. I love the idea that the pursuit in the classroom is asking questions. Mm-hmm. Very much so. So that invitation does not invite me to get the story right yeah, no. It invites me to ask. And I'm just struck that, you know, if I have the pleasure of living a long life, there are constantly going to be things I need to interrogate and ask questions Always. about. Always. Yep. And, and I hope that my students take that away, particularly and especially from my social justice class, where I feel like People want to prescribe solutions around these thorny, thorny problems that are causing all this upheaval in current events and in the news, and we don't know the right answer. We would not be in this much trouble if we knew the right answer. And so I want them to be able to fully interrogate what they see. What, what did you see on the news? Who crafted the news? Who edited that piece? What did they want you to take away from that march? That because you were not there... That's the only piece of it that you got. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And why did that happen? And I'm not saying don't watch the news. I'm saying interrogate the news. Understand that they're just going to show you the worst thing that happened. And it's good to know the worst thing that happened. Okay. But we can't assume that that's what everything looked like during that event. So that's the kind of thing that I want them to take away with them. The other things that I do is I play a lot of games with them in the beginning of the semester to build trust and for them to get to know one another and for them to respect differences between themselves as opposed to always looking for similarities. And it takes about five weeks for that to really steep in. And then I start giving them scenarios and role plays and other things where they get a chance to practice all of this stuff in a very safe environment. Right. Like, I'm not going to go tell you to interrogate something out there at the, at the Thanksgiving table with Uncle John. That doesn't seem safe. <laughs> Why don't we do this together? <laughs> try it out. <laughs> the other thing I try to do in all the classes that I teach is to offer students frameworks. And to say, here's a lens that you can use to look at this thing or a new thing. Right. I want you to look at communities through this lens, but you could also look at organizations through this lens because I don't want them to think that any one framework is right. You know, I try to give them two or three different frameworks for things so that they start to think more systematically, that they can do their own scaffolding around ideas and experiences that they don't need me or you or anybody else to do that for them. Right. Here I am in this mess. I can scaffold for myself and figure out where I want to be in this mess. And so I'm just recapping because I've already learned a ton already in the, in, it's been 20 minutes. I love this idea of encouraging students to ask the right questions, challenge their assumptions, and then adopt and practice tools that can help them do these kinds of things out in the world, so to speak. 
it's like an incredible framework for a course. Tell me about games that help students respect difference. Yeah, that oh, was amazing. Oh, man, right. there's a bajillion of them. <laughs> so in my theater life, I practiced the theater of the oppressed. Augusto Boal has an entire set of theories and activities and games that you can play with people to create broader senses of community and start to build belonging. And I'm a huge advocate and user of all of those games. So we play a game called Puppeteer, where they, you have to pretend that a person owns, has the strings. Your partner is holding you by strings and gets to move you around. And it's, it's one of the mirror games. And then when we talk about it afterwards, you know, about 50% of the students would w- want to be the puppeteer and the other 50% want to be the puppet. And so then we have a long conversation about how do you respect those choices and why might that be true and why is one not better than the other when you've been raised in a culture that tells you that the only thing that's good is control, right? And so taking things apart that way, we play another game, um, closed eyes game, where you lead somebody around, their eyes are closed, but you can't talk to them, so you can only touch them. And then we talk about what that experience was like. I do a lot of lineup games. You know, I'll have them line up in the order of their eyesight from the person who's the most blind to the person who can see the best. Oh my gosh, it is hilarious. Because <laughs> first of all, they have to spend a lot of time talking to each other to figure it out, right? Like they go, like, okay, what's my prescription? No, let me trade my glasses. <laughs> no, I have contacts in, does that count? There's another one that I think I heard of. You, maybe you told me about this with, with the chairs. You set up the chairs in a certain way and oh, a bottle yeah, the of water. Game. There's a lot of chair games out there. I, the chair game I play with people is called the Great Game of Power. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. Yeah. And so we, we, we play the Great Game of Power, which is kind of hard to describe, but you have five chairs and you are in a circle around the chairs and you take turns using the chairs to create an image of power. And so typically I'll start them off with four of the chairs facing one of the chairs. And I'll say, that's my image of power. And then just let them go. And the next thing you know, people have got chairs bowing down. People have got chairs up on tables. People are stacking chairs one on top of the other. And we talk about all of the images that they're able to come up with. And how is it that we all who don't know each other very well recognize all of those images? Are there other challenges to that? So I imagine like if you have one chair facing four, I I would almost imagine this, who gets the power in that situation could be argued either way. Exactly. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's the beauty of it, right? Almost any physical arrangement like that can be perceived that way, except if you have four chairs that are actually upturned, right? So it looks like they're kneeling and one chair that's still upright, then you'd start to get into different, or if the chairs have all fallen over. I love that question you raised just a bit ago, Diane, too, about why might that be true? And so I'm thinking of this, this, the great game of power. I love your comment that it highlights how we all recognize recreations of power. And yet I wonder if there might be variation given people's different experiences and this question of, why might that be true for someone is important. And I think the, the piece that resonates the most with my students is that we all recognize and can overlay some idea of power on any configuration, but they don't always match, right? And so it's almost like we're hardwired to identify power even when it's, even when it's not there. Because in the end, after 30 minutes, when I remind them that the chairs are not people and that the chairs do not have power, 
they're like, oh, right. <laughs> Over wow. the course of half an hour, about 70% of the time, this, the same chair has the power throughout the entire exercise. We, even with identical, like I know, and like they don't even pass. The, it's hilarious. It's, it's their insights afterwards into that, I think, that helps them understand that something that they may perceive as a power move may not have been perceived that way by someone else, but both of you were thinking about power. Right. It doesn't mean that you've left the power discussion. It just means that you weren't seeing the same thing in the mirror and how important that is around all of life's experiences. But I also, I line them up in order of skin color, which horrifies everybody in my department, but my students love it. Because if you don't do racialized categories and you literally just hold your arms up to each other, like darkest to most light today, it is fascinating what happens <laughs> and how much trouble all the people in the middle seem to be having wow. they're, they're like well but this is my tan and i'm not really sure that i could like we watched them negotiate for a while all of those of us on the ends like the dark people and the really really white people were like mm, we don't got this man <laughs> okay we're gonna let him go for another couple of minutes <laughs> Diane, you have to be one of the bravest people i've ever met <laughs> All of this, it, it paralyzes me with fear, just thinking about even. It's so much fun when like. I think my palms are sweaty. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like where some of my mestizo kids and black kids figure out that some of the Persian kids are darker skinned than they are. <laughs> and yet they're considered white and they know that they're black. Like they want to be at the end of the line. They're like, this is not okay. Like I'm black and I'm like, I know. <laughs> I know. Okay. <laughs> I didn't ask you to line up in order of how society racializes you. I just ask you to order up in the order of your skin color. And they're just like, oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. so adorable. This was reminding me of another study I learned about at this recent political science conference where scholars often will ask legislators, how would you describe your race? We're trying to figure out the patterns in the election of ethnic minorities, mm -hmm. oftentimes the results, particularly from majority men, are the mm -hmm. most awkward in answering that question Absolutely. because they're trying to not be at that one end of the spectrum. Absolutely. And because whiteness, not white people, but the concept of whiteness that we all live with demands that people who can fit in that category don't have to claim a racialized category. And so it's very uncomfortable when you go against that entire unlearned idea that everyone has race except white people. That's what whiteness is all about. And the truth is none of us have race. Somebody made that up, that's just crazy. But we do have skin color, so we can talk about that. I'm, I'm more than happy to talk to people about skin color. <laughs> But yeah, I was like, but, but it helps them get to the point of understanding that race is socially constructed. I mean, I can tell them that, but if I can also offer them the experience of it where they can see something different between what's in the classroom and how they would have lined themselves up just in their heads, right? And that is really powerful. But I also have them line up in order of height, in order of age, in order of how close they live to the campus, how long their hair is, have you, have you had a student just kind of say, time out, this has triggered me in, in a particular way? Have you had to? Typically, no. I'm trying to think of a specific instance and nothing's coming to mind. I do have students who express surprise or discomfort, but 
I'm okay with surprise and discomfort, and so then they tend to be okay with it as well. If I see a student looking particularly uh, affronted by something that's going on, I often will just wander over and say, how can I help? You know, do you, do you want me to come with you? We'll compare your arm to everybody. We can do this together. You don't have to do it alone. Let's try and figure it out that way. I also ask them how many of them cheated on something, right? So lots of them, like if we're, if we're doing the eyes closed games, will cheat. Like they can't do it. They can't let somebody else lead them around the building without opening their eyes. And I'm like, cool. But you know, if you were blind, that's not a choice. And I tend to focus more on ability than I do on either race or gender, but that's just me. I do stuff with them on all of those isms, but I tend to hammer home around ability more than anything. I'm thinking about this idea of power and acknowledgement of power, just being comfortable with whatever that status is. And, and then bringing that to our interactions with students in the classroom. I had a very interesting conversation with someone, a colleague, some, you know, in the last year, and it soon became clear that they were not actively thinking about their position of power in a classroom, which is striking because, you know, you sort of, you know, it's a job. You don't really think about, what I say or what I do or what I ask them or whatever has to be thought carefully in terms of like, I'm clearly in a position of power leading that room. Mm -hmm. And how do I, you know, sort of manage that, particularly if I want them to feel, you know, we sort of say, oh, you, you know, you should feel comfortable. You should be able to, you know, bring forth your questions and show vulnerability in all these kinds of ways. Well, great, easy for us to ask. We're the, we're the person who calls it, right? What are your thoughts about that sort of power dynamic in the classroom and sort of, I don't know, maybe evening it out in such a way that students can feel that they can be more vulnerable or at least participate in their education in the way that we all say that we would love to have? As a, as a non-believer... We're going right there, aren't we? Yeah, Just straight I come from another place. <laughs> um, so I do two things, which is I try to be very transparent with students about the fact that constructs of power are real and the consequences of those constructs are meaningful and real. And we can't any one of us necessarily shift that, right? You, you, you don't need to be vulnerable in my class. And I certainly don't expect everybody to be. It's not a safe environment and I can't make it safe. I don't have that kind of power. You know, your peers are in there, my supervisors are hanging out, there's other professors wandering up and down the hallways, and you may have just come from math class where somebody was, you know, I, I, I don't actually control. Not to disparage our math colleagues. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. They walk around with whips, you know. All right, moving on. <laughs> yeah, no, my students are like, oh, science and <laughs> They're trying to kill me. I'm like, well, yes, that's it. Your mom, it's okay. <laughs> but I know that that affects what happens in my classroom. Yeah. And I know that the university being what it is affects what happens in my classroom, right? It affects what I feel like I can do. So I try to be super transparent with them about that. Like you have a certain place in this power structure. I have a certain place in this power structure. And between the 60 of us, it's not very high. When I play games with them, often afterwards, one of the questions I ask them is, why did you do it? I asked you guys to all come up here and do this thing. And y'all were just giggling and laughing and you did it. And we've talked about it and everything. Why did you do that? And they're like, huh? And I'm like, why did you do that? Like if we had been at the FAC and I had walked in and said, I want everybody to line up and order their skin color. Do you think that people would do that? And they're like, well, no. <laughs> like, 
so why did you do it today? Well, because you're the professor. And I was like, mm-hmm, yeah, I'm the professor in this class and I get to tell you what to do. So let's just all be very clear about that. But, you know, check your own motivations. You want to please me? Awesome. Just know that that's what happened. Did you think I would chase you down in the hallway if you decided not to do it? Because I wouldn't. I mean, it's not that you can say no. I don't. It's not. That's the limit of my power. (laughs) Awesome. You know, as a political scientist leading up to the elections, I can't help but think about voting and young people voting, a sort of classic voter block that tends to be underrepresented in participation. And and this is making me think, isn't it fascinating that you're providing opportunities for students to engage and to maybe even use some of these questions around respecting difference, thinking about how to articulate their needs in a way that might be heard by other people sitting somewhat in different situations within the institution. They're actually applying some of these things that the games drew out. And if you want to be a good and effective social worker, those are skills you have to have. I mean, it's not just, oh, I'm this magic person who wants to teach them these groovy things. It's like they have to become professional social workers who advocate for their clients and for the issues that they care about effectively, right? That they're able to identify where the power lies, head towards that, approach it in an an understandable and transparent way to make the change happen. As a proponent of active learning and experiential learning, it makes sense to me to try and give them as many opportunities to advocate for something, to affect change, and to make that happen where they can see it so that they, I can congratulate them on being amazing social workers and they can (laughs) feel more agency around their chosen profession. I think that that's super important. And for the voting thing, when we've had elections, I ask them, how many of you have registered to vote? And those who have not registered to vote, when they raise their (laughs) hands, I say, okay, stand up, get your stuff, walk over to the FAC and register to vote. I don't need you in class today. I just gave you an hour to register to vote. Go now. And they do. Yeah, and thinking of advocacy, you know, there is a way in which advocacy requires us to recognize ourselves in relationship to others, to our community, to power. And these games that were making my palms sweat also helped them see themselves and each other and then do something with that information rather than just be squirmy. Right. No, and oftentimes we do something that day. It's funny, I hear on the news, people are like, can you teach people empathy? And I'm like, well, yeah. (laughs) I do it all the time. But I, I, I do think that some of it comes from the discipline too right, is that what I'm tasked to do is to teach these kids how to become social workers and to do their work. I don't like cultural competence as an idea, but I do, but I want them to be able to do their work in the most inclusive way and to be able to create belonging, not just for themselves, but for others. You know, I want them to have cultural humility and to be curious about other people. Diane, you worked as a social worker and have brought that experience into the classroom, it seems like. Do you have students that say, I have students that say, should I go straight into graduate school or should I work for a little while? All the time. Yeah. They ask me all the time. Yeah. So what do you say? It's a different, I tell people different things. So 
for students who, you know, great students, fairly affluent, have good support, all of those systems, they should probably go to work for a minute or two and then come back to graduate school. For students for whom coming to school financially is really, really rough and they've struggled, I was like, just do your master's degree while you're already used to eating rice and beans. Don't go get a job and get everything hunky-dory and then have to come back to this. <laughs> that is not okay. <laughs> like, if you are really... Um, and, and I tend to tell those students just to go straight through. You've already figured out how to do this for the past four years. Let's just give it another two. Right? Because if you actually have an income for the next two years and you're the only person in your family who does, they're not going to let you come back to school. Right? Everybody's on this path right now. Let's just stay there. And those social networks for academics are in place when you exactly. are a student. And That's it's right. stopping you've got being a student. You've got your this. Exactly. And so I tend to tell those students to go straight through, international students to go straight through. It really depends very much on their circumstances, what I would say to them. I mean, I don't know how else you could do it. To me, I mean, obviously, career-wise, there's kind of the perfect math for something. Who can do that? I mean, come on. You know, if I'm talking to some kid and they're like working overnight at Sam's and they've got two kids at home and whatever, I'm like, sweetie, just hang with that program, okay? Like, you got this. We're on a roll. Just apply yeah. to graduate school, get it done, and then we can go. <laughs> yeah. So it's different for different students. I try to match it to them, but again, that's a social work precept: is you meet the client where they are. Anytime you start to have a conversation with someone or you start thinking about it, you do a little bit of assessing, like, who are you before I launch off and tell you what the, the magic recipe is? Let me figure out who you are and what's going to fit best with the next three years for you, not for me, not for my kid, but for you. I mean, I, I worked in social services. I was not a social worker until after I got my PhD because social workers are very persnickety about these things. So you have to have a degree in social work in order to be called a social worker. And my only degree in social work is my is my doctorate. They're very fussy. <laughs> I worked in D.C. for a little while before going back to graduate school. And I value those years of working that sort of shaped my sense of what I wanted out sure. of graduate school. And it shapes how I engage, you know, in my department because I have worked in other systems in addition to academics. But I do appreciate your perspective what is the starting place for that student? Not everybody has the privilege to be like, oh, I'm going to go experiment out in the work world and then come back. That's not everybody's. If somebody can, I tell them to go do it. I, you, life will be more fun for you. <laughs> yes, go figure something out. Go work somewhere else. But not everybody, not everybody has that. I was just going to reflect very briefly on this. I think it is a really interesting conversation about um, now I'm just talking about my own worlds in college of natural sciences of uh, students. If they don't go to med school, which is most of our students hope to go to med school, I think, or they at least say that they are. And there's always some conversation about, well, if I don't go to med school, or if I don't go to professional school right after college, there's a sense in that they're being left behind. And I also worked for a couple of years before I went to grad school and it was the best decision I ever made because I not only had a sense to sort of catch my breath and pay back some loans, but also to to understand the networking, to understand what it meant to go to grad school, have time to kind of think about that and understand that whole process. What am I going to be doing? What's the research going to be looking like and what the expectations are? And I think I went to a smaller art school, so I didn't have that. I never met a grad student. So it was helpful for me to go through that. You're laughing at me right now. <laughs> I never met a grad student. 
except my dad when he was in grad school, it doesn't count in sciences. So I think it's really fascinating to think, get that perspective also from you about thinking about what that student's experiences might be. And, you know, maybe just pushing straight on through is the right decision. So I appreciate hearing that because I would, would always say, oh yeah, working's the best thing. You know, you should work for a couple of years and get your sense of where you're going. But I appreciate hearing that from you now. That is absolutely the right answer. You're absolutely correct. But it is not, it is not a one size fits all answer. Yeah. Yeah. I see that now. (laughs) So Diane, this question might cue in with the previous conversation that we were having about the young adult fiction. We were talking earlier about interrogating a story. And while we might take the Harry Potter as this interesting arc of a young person who feels that he carries the weight of the world on their shoulder or Katniss in the Hunger Games, she has to be the answer for this change. We interrogate that story. I think there is a place to consider a country's history, for example, as a story worth interrogating. So right now we are asking questions about this story that we've been told The way I address that in the classroom with my students is I show them a movie called The Power Broker. It's about Whitney Young Jr. It's 55 minutes long, and it's about the civil rights movement. It's a great opportunity to talk to them about race and anti-Blackness and lots of stuff. But what you learn from watching that movie is that there were six men at the head of six different organizations who made the civil rights movement work that it wasn't just MLK and it wasn't just people marching. That's not how change happened. So they have interviews with these folks. They have all these film clips. It's it's a wonderful, and thank goodness they made this movie. My gosh, I could talk about this for days and they've got it all packed into this one little thing. But I talked to my students about, and I asked them after they've seen the movie, we all watch it together. And I asked them, what surprised you? while you were watching the movie. And they said, this isn't what I learned in school. I did, I'd never heard this man's name before, except for on the front of a building. I had no idea what his work was. I didn't know anything about his dad. I did not know that there were six people who were leaders in the civil rights movement. <laughs> I had no idea that someone was good friends with LBJ and helping to make this happen. I did not know that it was a black man who thought up Medicare and Head Start. I just, I didn't know any of this stuff. Why didn't anybody teach me this in school? And I said, well, It is important to understand the narrative of our country. And I want you to not just believe everything that someone tells you about something. For sure. I mean, for me, this speaks to the value of understanding the year 1619 in relationship to 1776. What is the birth story of Mm -hmm. this experience that we're in? I think to your point about the power broker, I would also add the valuable voices of women in the movement. I am actually very intentional of in doing that around black men because of the stigma and danger that there is to black men. It is super important to me to represent black men as being amazing. And so I, I hear you on the women thing. So Molly, you do that and I'll do this. I'm gonna hold up some black men. <laughs> These are my men. <laughs> It's funny, in my office at UT, I, on the wall behind me was a picture of my dad and a picture of Buck O'Neill, who played in the uh, Negro League baseball. Amazing, amazing man. And I also have a picture of Kebmo, who's a musician, jazz musician, contemporary jazz musician. My dad and, and Buck O'Neill have both passed on. But I have them, they're all signed. You know, all these things. And I say, these are my men. Behind me are black men. 
<laughs> and if you people keep killing them, I will not be happy about it. <laughs> people come up and like, so then, like two weeks before class started, I said, I got to go back down to campus and get my guys, man. I can't teach without my men. <laughs> Parallelly, when I look up, that's who that I is see. so cool. So yes, I agree with you. I, I think that the story of how women have contributed to our nation's history and the work that women have done around civil rights and all that stuff is hugely, hugely important. I don't know that I can sing everyone's song, right? That how intentional I am about making the choices about who I lift up has to be reflective and authentic to the issues that I'm most concerned about. And to the consternation of many, many, many black women, <laughs> often highly annoyed with me. And I'm like, why should I do that? You're doing that. I got to do this other thing. Yeah, I hear you. There is only so much. And I think it is interesting to consider this is where I'm leaning in, mm -hmm. in my story. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that we lean in most effectively to the pieces of the story that own our hearts. Not that we have made some intellectual decision about or that we're like, oh, they need to know more about this or they need to know more about that. I think that when we lean in in those places where it really speaks to our heart, I think we have some agency to create some change for students. And when I try to lean in around stuff that isn't there, I don't think it has the same impact. I think it has to, at a certain point... I guess I could say, okay, yeah, I'm a teacher. I could teach anything, right? But lots of what I could teach wouldn't be very compelling for students or me, right? I don't know that I would do great service to other stuff. Find that spot. How do you find that sweet spot where your teaching skills and the material and the content and, you know, your ability and tools that you have all kind of come together and you're making these really intentional choices about what you do in the classroom those were the professors I loved, even if they were doing something. I mean, one of my favorite professors was like a white guy, which, oh my God, how, how could that happen at UT? And he was a government teacher and there were like 500 of us in the room. Like, who loves that teacher? Well, he was in love with Abraham Lincoln and would tell you like that they had the same shoe size and that they were the same height. Like he just had this very idiosyncratic relationship with what he was teaching. And it was amazing. Like I learned more from just watching him and he lectured, which I also hate. And it was magic. You got to find your sweet spot. I couldn't have gotten away with it. I could not lecture 500 students about Abraham Lincoln and had any impact whatsoever. And it reminds me to also be okay with what I can't do. I tell my students, there's a reason that there are thousands of us here. Don't expect everything from one professor. You have this amazing privilege to be at one of the top universities in the United States and probably in the world. Scholars here from all over dip, man, take, go swimming in all of this because... You know, and I tell them, you want to have an adjunct person who's just teaching on the side and has a career in the area that you're interested in and can tell you about all that stuff. And you want to, you know, you want a lecturer, an instructor, a professor of instruction who just loves teaching and is spending all of their time finding cool teaching stuff for you. And you want a tenure track professor who is obsessed with their research and does not give a shit about you. <laughs> because getting to sit in the room with that person is freaking amazing. <laughs> But if you expect them to be me, you got, it's, it's not going to yeah. happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Diane, thank you so much. This was an incredible conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks. It was super fun. Thanks, Diane. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. 
For more information and to provide feedback, please visit us online at texaspts.org. Thank you.